0: Fukushima. Twelve years after the earthquake and tsunami caused the meltdown of three nuclear reactors on the northeastern coast of Japan, citizens are still dealing with the aftermath and will for years, if not generations, to come. Big stories show up sporadically in news articles. The intended release of 1.37 million tons of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean the ongoing struggle of where to put the radioactive waste. But what are the people going through? What are the continuing manipulations by government to hide, diminish, or reframe the ongoing dangers of that nuclear disaster? It's hard to tell from a distance. It takes someone on site who is knowledgeable and concerned to look at how life is being played out Someone who can read between the lines and spot what's true, what's public relations, and what's manipulation. She has insights from firsthand observation, and she tells you It seems odd
1: to me that one mayor in an impoverished village of 904 can make a decision to store all of Japan's nuclear waste, or that a little town of 2000 can decide to host a nuclear power plant that has the potential to obliterate everything around it. But Yuji pointed out that it's easier to buy off 904 struggling fishermen than the
0: population of Tokyo. And there is so much more. When Beverly Finlay Kaneko, co-producer of Nuclear Hot Seats annual Voices from Japan Fukushima anniversary special, reports on what she's seen and experienced firsthand during her recent trip to Fukushima Prefecture and offers observations on how life on the ground there has changed, warped, and distorted in the 12 years since the disaster began, you begin to get a true sense of how devastating and everlasting is the impact from that deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? New- the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we commemorate the 12th anniversary of the start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, With the latest in our annual series voices from japan beverly finlay kaneko again gives an on-the-ground report on the continuing impact facing japanese people in and around the radioactive remains of that triple meltdown all of this is based on her first-hand observations as well as her history of understanding exactly what is at stake as you will hear The well-programmed government attempts to manipulate perception of the nuclear disaster continue to boggle the mind, even as Japan is being pushed forward in its plans to release 1.37 million tons of radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean and restart its nuclear reactors. But what's missing from those headlines is the daily toll the Fukushima nuclear disaster continues to take on the people who live and lived there. And that's what you're about to hear. Today is Tuesday, March 7, 2023, and here is this week's Fukushima 12th Anniversary Special, Voices from Japan. Our co-producer and reporter, Beverly Finlay kaneko lived in Yokohama, Japan for 20 years until March of 2011 after the Great Eastern Japan earthquake. She worked at Yokohama National University and the Japan Times. Beverly has a master's degree in East Asian Studies from Stanford University and speaks Japanese fluently. Since returning from Japan, Beverly and her husband, Yuji Kaneko, have been active in raising awareness about nuclear issues, including the nuclear accident at Fukushima. Their main activities have included organizing speaking tours, giving presentations, networking in activist and nuclear impacted communities in the U.S. and Japan, and since 2013, co producing the Nuclear Hot Seat episode, Voices from Japan, our annual anniversary special on Fukushima. We spoke on Monday, February 27, 2023. Beverly Finlay Kaneko. It is always an honor to have you on the show for Voices from Japan.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here again.
0: As regards the impact of Fukushima on Japan and nuclear energy, what has been going on in the court of public opinion?
1: Well, in the run-up to the 12th anniversary of the Great East Japan Triple Disaster, Earlier this month, the Asahi Shimbun conducted a nationwide survey to gauge public opinion on nuclear energy. It was the first time since the Fukushima nuclear disaster that the majority of people were in favor of restarting Japan's nuclear power plants, which were shuttered in the wake of the accident. 51% answered in favor and just 42% were opposed. Since the accident, those in favor of restarting Japan's shuttered nuclear reactors has wavered around 30 percent, and those opposed were 50 to 60 percent. Even as recently as last year, only 38 percent said that they approved of giving nuclear another chance, while 48 percent were against it. Reflecting this shift in public approval, Prime Minister Kishida's administration has committed itself to a nuclear renaissance, but the government may not yet have as solid of a public mandate as it hopes for. The Asahi survey asked about the administration's plans to rebuild nuclear power plants. The respondents were split down the middle with 45% approving and 46% percent disagreeing with the government's plans. It could be that support for nuclear is just aspirational, but when it comes to huge investments of tax money, people are more skeptical.
0: Given everything they've been through, why are the people in Japan more open to nuclear?
1: Well, there are four main reasons that the public opinion has shifted so dramatically in just one year. First, as with everywhere else, the war in Ukraine has led to huge increases in fossil fuel prices, making people reconsider nuclear as an option. There's the wrongheaded notion that nuclear is cheap and that there are all these reactors sitting around that can be restarted. People might balk in investing in expensive new projects, but don't really think about the costs involved in restoring brittle, aging nuclear infrastructure. Second, the effects of global warming are felt keenly in Japan, which has been experiencing ever stronger typhoons and flooding, freezing winters and summer heat that has become unbearable. In the push to decarbonize, nuclear is considered to be a climate-friendly option, even though we know it really isn't. Third, it's been a dozen years since the Great East Japan Triple Disaster, Aside from the annual nod to the issues in the media, it really isn't on the top of people's minds anymore. There have been so many big events since then that have dominated the news cycles. The Olympics, COVID, which by the way, is not considered to be over in Japan, where everyone masks, even outside. Prime Minister Abe's assassination, and so on. Fukushima has moved from the current events section, to the history shelves. Related to
0: that is number four, the P word. You're talking about pro-nuclear propaganda?
1: Yes. All along, there has been a concerted effort to minimize the effects of the disaster. We've discussed so many of these over the past decade of coverage here on Nuclear Hot Seat. For example, The notion of people spreading harmful rumors about Fukushima if they dare to question the safety of food products or raising children in a radioactive environment. The twisting of pediatric thyroid cancer statistics and outright denial that highly elevated numbers of victims in Fukushima is related to the nuclear accident. Nationally distributed educational materials for children that gloss over the dangers of radiation and minimize the seriousness of cancer. Promotional tours for students and international visitors that are crafted to showcase Fukushima as a safe destination. Museums that skirt around the issues. Promotional events in unsafe areas that make it seem like life has gone back to normal when it really hasn't.
0: Aside from another accident, is there anything that might cause the public opinion pendulum in Japan to swing back towards anti-nuclear? Yes, I think the public is
1: very wary, especially if they think it might affect their own daily lives. You'll remember that in the early days after the disaster, there was a largely ineffective outcry in Kansai and other areas when possibly radioactive tsunami rubble was shipped nationwide for incineration. That brought the disaster home for people around the country, at least for a while. We still pay a special tax for post-disaster reconstruction every year during tax season. It's a line item on the tax returns. When I do my US taxes, I have to translate and explain that to my CPA. That's an annual reminder to every taxpayer, and I know people complain about it. Recently, the government has plans to start shipping quote-unquote decontaminated soil from Fukushima's vast stockpiles of the stuff to other places around Japan for experiments that will eventually lead to use in public works.
0: Why did you put quote marks around decontaminated?
1: Because it's really contaminated soil, It's just under the limit to be considered nuclear waste. But the government raised that limit in the wake of the Fukushima accident. In other words, soil discontaminated would have been considered nuclear waste pre-Fukushima.
0: Tell us more about this program.
1: NHK News reported that initial shipments are planned for Shinjuku Gyoen National Park which is one of Tokyo's largest and most popular parks in the middle of one of Tokyo's busiest districts. It's also going to an environmental research facility in Tokorozawa city in Saitama, a suburb in the Northwest part of the greater Tokyo metropolitan area. The government will proceed after it gains the understanding
0: of area residents. Understanding. By this, do you mean that it is consent-based citing?
1: Well, we both know that that's loaded terminology. It's hard to tell. In December 2022, public information sessions were held in both areas. Usually, those sessions are more like Southern California Edison's community engagement panel here in San Onofre. There's a lot of explanation with very limited opportunity for public comment and real dialogue. Concerning the Shinjuku Park and the Saitama Research Center soil experiments, locals were left wondering why those particular areas were selected and felt that they were given too little information about the projects. The mayor of Tokorozawa said that the majority of citizens in his city were opposed to the project.
0: So what does the government plan to do about it?
1: The Environment Ministry said that it plans to start the projects within the year and to that end will provide written answers to questions that were raised during the information sessions and hold additional public sessions if needed. It will then reevaluate plans to begin the projects. Anyway, there is a lot of soil and debris that needs to be dealt with one way or another. The government promised Fukushima Prefecture that it would be shipped around the country So I think Fukushima will be on more and more people's minds when the waste ends up in their own backyards.
0: You did some traveling in Japan recently. When and where did you go? We were there in October and November
1: 2022. We visited Hokkaido up in the north in October to catch up with family in Sapporo and take a road trip around the Shakotan Peninsula. In November, we spent several days traveling around Fukushima with an old friend in his camper van. He camped, and we stayed in hotels. Strangely enough, we also encountered nuclear insanity in Hokkaido.
0: Really? What did you come across there?
1: We were on a scenic drive around the Shakotan Peninsula. In November, it's a pretty desolate place. In the summer, apparently there are huge traffic jams as vacation goers seek out the seaside views and sea urchin, which is a local delicacy. In November, it's abalone season, but it's cold and remote, so it's less popular. It's beautiful, but pretty desolate with all of the sea urchin shacks and fishermen's huts boarded up for the winter. As we circumnavigated the peninsula, winding our way through dark tunnels and back into the bright sunlight, Yuji and I were on the lookout for a Kamoenai village. It has a population of 904, but has been in the national news as one of two local towns. The other one is called Sutsu, that are vying for the honor to host permanent storage of all of Japan's nuclear waste. If the plans come to fruition, the towns will receive billions of yen in subsidies. There has been fierce opposition from neighboring towns and villages. It's a lot to go into here, but there's a good article in the Asahi Shimbun that describes the conflict.
0: We will post a link to it on NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode.
1: So while I think we saw a sign for the village, I think we missed the village altogether. At least along the coastal highway, it was nothing more than a handful of aging small buildings and homes. A little farther down the highway, things started to look decidedly swankier. There was a big fancy school set into the hillside, among other newer, relatively expensive looking buildings and homes. And then to the right, suddenly there was a huge museum surrounded by a hilly lawn. It was the Khan Nuclear PR Museum. We had arrived at Hokkaido's nuclear village. Of course, we had to stop. Tomari Nuclear Power Plant is located nearby. You don't see it from the highway as it is obscured by cliffs and hills.
0: Is it operational or will it be restarted?
1: No, it was shuttered in the wake of Fukushima and it couldn't meet post-Fukushima safety standards. Hokkaido Electric has been pushing for a decade to get the plant back online, but they can't seem to bring the plant into compliance. In May 2022, the Sapporo District Court ordered that it remain offline due to safety issues. Hokkaido Electric keeps trying, and the plant was supposed to be ready to be re-evaluated in September this year. However, it looks like they've postponed until December due to tsunami safety issues. Other issues on the laundry list include earthquakes,
0: volcanoes, as well as a
1: problematic seawall. Is
0: it really called a PR museum? Yes. Well, truth in advertising. Tell us about this PR museum. It was much of
1: what we've come to expect from similar facilities in Fukushima. Lots of stuff to make nuclear seem happy and familiar. There were several Fun, hands-on things for kids on field trips to fool around with. There was a grinning cartoon character in the shape of a nuclear reactor wearing red gloves and socks. There was a giant pillar marking 6.5 meters, which is the height of the Tomari nuclear power plant seawall. I guess that's supposed to prove that it's safer than Fukushima's seawall, which was only 5.5 meters. Apparently, you can make special reservations to view the seawall from the observation platform at the nuclear power plant. And on our way out, we saw cute handouts and a map out front directing visitors to local tourist spots. On this chilly October day, we were the only people at the museum.
0: What made the biggest impression on you about this museum? I
1: think that more than the museum itself was the striking difference between the surrounding boarded up and desolate fishing villages. And all of a sudden you're in a visibly well-off area. And then through the next tunnel, you're back on the road line with shacks that have been boarded up for the season. Obviously the mayors of waste dump candidates, Kamoe Nai and Sutsu are grabbing for a handful of that nuclear glitter to spiff up their own little towns. Fukushima is the same way with struggling mountain hamlets and seaside villages acquiescing to and benefiting from the nuclear industry. It's just not quite as jarring as this particular area in Hokkaido because Hokkaido's landscape is starker and more dramatic and Fukushima's is more bucolic and heavily forested which masks some of the poverty. Little farmhouses nestled in among the trees and paddy fields are quaint, but rickety boarded up fishing huts hunkering beneath towering stone cliffs give off an air of desperation. Reflecting on this, it seems odd to me that one mayor in an impoverished village of 904 can make a decision to store all of Japan's nuclear waste, or that a little town of 2000 can decide to host a nuclear power plant that has the potential to obliterate everything around it. But Yuji pointed out that it's easier to buy off 904 struggling fishermen than the population of Tokyo. Kamoe and Sutsu can receive around $19 million just for the first two years of the research phase of the project. That's a drop in the bucket if you consider what it would cost in a more populated area to, get, to convince people to go along. Did you go to Fukushima as well? Yes, we were in Fukushima in November. Where did you go? Yuji retraced some of his footsteps from his trip in 2021. But aside from Tomioka, Fukushima City, and Koriyama, much of what we saw was new to me. I hadn't been to Fukushima since pre-pandemic in 2019. Actually, a lot of it was new to Yuji, too, because the Japanese government took down barricades and opened up a lot of the difficult-to-return zone in the run-up to the Olympics. We visited Idate Village, which is about 40 miles northwest of Fukushima Daiichi, to check up on some things Yuji had seen previously. That area was extremely contaminated due to changing winds in the wake of the accident. From there, we traveled to visit Tsushima Village. We poked around a bit at the Futaba Station area where Yuji visited previously, and went to densho or the Great East Japan Earthquake and Nuclear Disaster Memorial Museum. We spent the night at J Village in Naraha. That's the Olympic soccer training center that served as base camp for the decontamination workers from Fukushima
0: Daiichi. Where did you go on day two? We went
1: to Tomioka, where Setsuko Kida used to live. I had been there in 2019 with Yuji, Kida-san, and Shinshu Hida. This time, we visited Yuki Saito, who's the owner of a company called Fukushima Environmental Research and Development, and Sho Kobayashi, a young man that works with him. We spent the night in Koriyama and caught up with Shinshu Hida for coffee on
0: our third morning. Give us some of the highlights of your travels. Our
1: friend Sen San drove us around in his camper van. He's a retired elementary school principal from Fukushima City who took care of his students during and after the triple disaster. He's an active and jovial guy who, in retirement, started a nonprofit that aids school children in Vietnam and Laos. Still, traveling with him through Fukushima, you can tell that the wounds from the nuclear disaster are not far from the surface. He is still very tuned in to what happened to schools and children and had a lot of good information and stories, but he tended to remove himself from the scene when it got to be too much. We'd be poking around at whatever we'd stop to see, and Sen San would take a quick look and go back out to hang out with a cup of coffee in his camper van. I remember traveling with him on my first trip to Fukushima in 2014, and his normally wide-smiling face closing in on itself as he looked out on the blackened remains of a stand of persimmon trees that a farmer had poisoned because he could no longer sell their sweet fruit. On this trip, we stopped at the remains of Ukedo Elementary School, which was engulfed in the tsunami. All of the children were able to take a trail through a farm and up a hill where they were picked up by a trucker and driven to safety. The ruins of the school had been preserved and made into an exhibit that you can walk through. It was heartbreaking to see the warped and buckled gymnasium floor, the mostly empty cubbies and debris like shoes and books strewn in the corners. There was a room with a bulletin board that displayed student compositions collected post-disaster. A young man who looked to be in his early 20s stood in front of that bulletin board, sobbing. Sansan started walking through the school with us, but quickly removed himself to the parking lot. Twelve years in, and the hurt is still there. You want to move on, but can't, because the experience is part of who you are.
0: I can relate with that because I was at Three Mile Island in 1979, which is almost 44 years ago, and I can still be triggered by memories, by seeing it, by hearing things, and when that happens, the pain comes up as fresh as if it was brand new. Right. So tell us more about where Sensan took you. As I mentioned earlier, we went to Iedate.
1: The road there was heavily forested and it can't be decontaminated. Rainwater that that again. Rainwater washing down those forested hillsides is what keeps the cycle of contamination going. There are a lot of empty homes and fallow fields dotting the highway from Fukushima City to Idate. Still, the hillsides were ablaze with color and it was beautiful. We passed Onami Village. Everyone left taking their children with them, and the elementary school we passed was closed and abandoned. The last solitary student graduated in 2013 and left the area. It was in the news at the time. Sansan's friend had an apple orchard in this area, but he gave up and left too. In the same area, Oguni Village has no young people around anymore. Sansan told us that no matter how many times they ground down the surface of the concrete around the school, they couldn't bring down the radiation levels so that the school had to close. Sansan oversaw the same process with more success at the school where he was principal. It was still an arduous process that took a lot of time. The waste from these efforts was stored on site for an extended period. We visited Sen San's old school in 2014, and he went around checking all of the hotspots with his Geiger counter, still concerned about the children's well-being. As we approached Idate, there were still do not enter signs blocking the side roads and some heavy machinery on the fields that appeared to be scraping soil. This kind of scene is no longer common in the more populated areas, which have already been deemed decontaminated and soil carted off to interim storage. But here, soil scraping and black bags are ubiquitous again. But most of the fields appear to be cared for and weed free. We passed a block of newish post-disaster recovery housing. In town, rice paddies have been harvested. We made a quick stop at the fancy community center slash rest stop. It was pretty busy. The little farmer's market had quite a bit of local produce for sale, and there was still a man in the corner running radiation detection equipment if you wanted to check if something is safe or not. We then went to go check out the new school, Idate Hope Village Academy, that was built with an obscene amount of reconstruction funds.
0: We talked about that school with Itate resident Nobuyoshi Ito, for Nuclear Hot Seats Voices from Japan, number 507, in 2021.
1: Yes, at the time, he mentioned that the school had around 100 students. They commute from elsewhere because they get so many government benefits for attending. Still, given the size of the school facilities, 100 students don't seem like a large student body, as it is from preschool through junior high. That's an average of about eight students per grade level. When we were there, we stood above an athletic field and track. It was huge, brand new, and made with high-end modern materials. There were giant night lights surrounding the field that looked like they belonged in a baseball stadium. A class of five or so third graders were playing in the middle of the field under the supervision of their teacher. In contrast, my son's school in Yokohama recently moved and rebuilt in another part of the city on a larger piece of land. It seemed to me that that whole school could fit into the athletic field in Idate Village. senator and I stood chatting next to his van while Yuji went to wrestle around in the brush with his Geiger counter. He found that the radiation levels were inconsistent around the school, Registering 0.8 to 0.9 microsieverts per hour at the edge of the parking lot. Let me just interject here to remind everyone that around 0.23 is what is considered to be a safe level by the government post Fukushima. That's still a pretty elevated level, but anyway, that's what's considered safe as of now. So 0.8, 0.9 is. Probably about four times what's considered to be safe. Obviously, the kids at that school and in that neighborhood need to be careful not to stray from specifically decontaminated areas. The hill in the back of the school had been completely stripped of vegetation. I wonder if that's an area where children can play, even though it doesn't seem very attractive. It might be a good sledding hill in the winter, though.
0: We'll continue with this week's nuclear hot seat special, Fukushima at 12, Voices from Japan, in just a moment. But first, on March 11, 2011, the world changed forever with the 9.0 magnitude earthquake off the northeast coast of Japan. It flooded three nuclear reactors at Fukushima Daiichi, triggering meltdowns, explosions, and massive radiation releases into the air and water, with no end of the contamination in sight. Three months after Fukushima's nightmare began, I was frustrated that I could find no single source to provide all the nuclear information I wanted and needed. So on June 14, 2011, I presented the first nuclear hot seat and made a commitment to try doing one a week for a while, never imagining that, 12 years later, here I'd be, with more than 600 weekly episodes produced, international distribution, broadcast outlets through Pacifica Broadcasting, and a week-by-week audio archive chronicling nuclear industry malfeasance and citizen response. The show has been cited as source material by journalists, academics, and authors, and it also won me the 2022 International Nuclear-Free Future Award for Education. I invite you to go to NuclearHotSeat.com and search through these episodes to find the nuclear information you need from knowledgeable sources with footnotes, links, and verifiable research to prove what they're saying. Nuclear Hot Seat's archives cover the shared nuclear history of our beautiful planet, providing context and continuity on stories, celebrations of our wins, commiserations for setbacks, strategies to move forward, and acknowledgement of the brave activists fighting against nuclear expansion and contamination around the globe. None of the work of this show would be possible without your help. And in order to continue the work, we continue to need your help. Nuclear Hot Seat is supported solely through donations. So take this step to support our work with a donation, whether you can provide the equivalent of a cup of coffee or a major grant, be it one time only, or on a monthly basis. Everything helps and makes you part of the reason that we continue to be here. So if you value weekly coverage, in-depth reports, and specials on nuclear like this one, please do what you can now. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're here, you're listening, and that you care now we return to voices from japan the special fukushima 12th anniversary commemoration with beverly findlay kaneko next we headed to tsushima that name doesn't sound familiar have you visited there before
1: no (laughs) route 399 which takes you to tsushima just reopened in september 2022. this heavily forested area was in the exclusion zone and was inaccessible previously due to road closure. The difference between Iedate and Tsushima was jarring. Initially, there were a few harvested rice paddies, but then more and more weed-choked fields. There were trucks carrying bags of dirt, I assume, to interim or temporary storage. There were vast areas of fallow but weed-free fields there was decontamination work being done in the distance. We passed a roadside radiation monitor that read 0.26 microsieverts per hour. And the alarm inside the car was quiet. We wondered about some of the workers who weren't wearing much in the way of protective gear. Sensan said that one time he spoke to an unmasked guard along Route 6 and asked him if he knew it was dangerous. The guard said that he did, and that it was enough for him that he could work and send money to his family up north in Hokkaido.
0: All along, it seems that the impoverished have been recruited for the decontamination work. Yes. Were there any barricades along the road like you have seen on previous visits?
1: Yes, along Route 399, there were barricades alongside the road tentatively blocking access to the difficult-to-return zone. As we approached Tsushima, there were more and more abandoned homes. The village is open now, but it was empty. It was Halloween that day, and here we were in a real ghost town. Time had completely stopped. There was an abandoned health clinic and junior high school. Tattered curtains fluttered out of broken windows. The athletic ground in front of the school now serves as a parking lot for construction vehicles, and there was a radiation screening center alongside the road leading to the junior high school. There was a large sign detailing decontamination plans posted in front of the school, and decontamination bags were piled up. We moved along to the village elementary school, which was completely bereft of life. The school athletic ground was weed choked, and decontamination bags sat in a pile. Aside from a few workers and one ancient farmer tending a little plot of vegetables, there was absolutely no one around. It was hard to gauge how many people actually used to live here. Sansan gazed up at the elementary school building and said, it's a splendid building. What a waste. There were probably two classes per grade. In the crisp fall air, I could almost hear the 360 students and their families cheering and laughing at the annual school sports festival. Yuji took his Geiger counter and camera and picked his way through the weeds and onto campus. Sensan and I stayed in the parking lot. Yuji quickly returned and said that his Geiger counter alarm went off around the swimming pool. Farther up the road, we stopped at the brand new Tsushima Village Town Hall. Yuji went in and said that there were only two people working. There was a block of public housing being built by Sekisui House next door. Apparently, this is for the official reopening in March of this year. At the time of our visit, no one could actually live in Tsushima. It'll be interesting to see if anyone does decide to live there. The difference between Tsushima and the areas that have been given lots of money for decontamination and reconstruction is shocking. Up until now, the government has done nothing for Tsushima so the town is suing the government. After Tsushima, we headed in the direction of Fukushima Daiichi and the towns of Namiye and Futaba. The Geiger counter alarm started to go off in the car, registering at 1.65 microsieverts per hour. There was decontamination work going on in the area and we passed an incinerator. It was reminiscent of scenes we encountered closer to Fukushima city in 2014.
0: You've been to Futaba and Namie before, right?
1: Yes. Yuji was in Futaba in 2021, and we both visited Namie and the Tsunami Memorial in 2019 with Kida-san and Hida-san. This time we visited a big convenience store in Namie to get some drinks and headed to the Great East Japan Earthquake and Nuclear Disaster Memorial Museum in Futaba. When Yuji visited last time, he said that it was boring and dry and didn't communicate any emotion or urgency about the disaster. There were many similar complaints, so the government upped its game and the result is over the top. There are video screens inset into the walls with victims relating their experiences. There's a special room for live presentations. There's sound everywhere and interactive maps and so much flashy stuff going on that it's distractive and counterproductive. There are large groups of high school students being shepherded through by fast-talking docents. There are attendants posted at the doorways to tell you which way to walk. We got yelled at for going the wrong way because it's dangerous. We finally settled in with a group of students and started to listen to one docent's spiel. It was full of lies and half-truths and went out of the way to absolve anyone of responsibility for the accident. For example, he said it couldn't be helped because no one predicted this big of a tsunami.
0: Uh, no. Scientists had warned that the seawall wasn't high enough for the size of a possible tsunami. Right.
1: And Tepco ignored the advice. And that is one of the main pillars of the court decision against them. Furthermore, the docent said that Fukushima Daiichi was an American design, correct, and that there are no tsunamis in America, only tornadoes and hurricanes, so that American designs are too weak for Japan's environment.
0: Great choice they made when they built them then.
1: Well, I went up afterward and corrected him on the second point and Yuji scolded him at length about the first point. It turned out that the man himself was a retired teacher from Fukushima, Soma in the northern part of the coastal area. And he knew these things, but had been told that this is what he is supposed to say to museum guests. Next, we went into a room that was lined with displays and interactive videos about the process of decontamination. There was a group of about five or six teenage boys being teenage boys, pushing buttons, looking at the pictures, laughing, saying, oh, that job looks easy. Even I could do that. Yuji, bless his soul, since their teacher was not around, took those boys aside and explained that the workers were doing a dangerous job and that sadly it's not an easy job and nearly always fails because things become contaminated again when it rains, and so forth. The boys, it turned out, were from Fukuoka on the southern island of Kyushu. Sensan told us that Fukushima Prefecture has a lot of money to bring student groups from other parts of the country. Finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. It was total sensory overload. We went out to the parking lot where there were at least five sleek black luxury tour buses waiting for the students. We got back into Sansan's more humble form of transportation and headed to Jay Village in Naraha to spend the night.
0: So how was Jay Village? I remember you mentioning before that there is a hotel attached and tourists can stay.
1: It was actually very nice. The rooms looked out to the pitch The lobby had displays detailing the facility's role in the aftermath of the disaster. It is being used as an active soccer training facility, and there were Spanish-speaking guests in the restaurant that seemed like they might have something to do
0: with soccer. Didn't Arnie Gunderson survey that area a few years ago when he went to Fukushima to collect samples?
1: Yes, I do remember that Arnie Gunderson and someone else found some elevated radiation readings in the dirt alongside or in the parking area at Jay Village in the lead up to the Olympics. I wish that visitors had a little bit more information about some of the risks they are taking and how to protect themselves when visiting. Jay Village is in Naraha, which is south of Fukushima Daiichi. It was on the edge of the exclusion zone initially and was one of the first towns where evacuation orders were lifted in 2015. So it seems natural that there are hot spots. Residents have been slow to return, and we found that what there was of a town rolled up its sidewalks pretty early in the evening. I did not feel uncomfortable staying at J Village, but I would hate to see naive visitors rent a car and venture up the coast to the former exclusion zone areas without the proper information. And there is really nothing stopping anyone from going
0: anywhere they please at this point. It sounds like it, since you weren't able to drive right through what was the exclusion zone until recently. Didn't you travel along Route 6 in 2019, where the side roads were all barricaded for miles and your Geiger counter kept going off? Yes,
1: but all those barricades are down now because of the Olympics. You might not be able to live there, but you can walk around freely. This was really apparent when we stopped at Futaba Station after we visited the Great East Japan Earthquake and Nuclear Disaster Memorial Museum, There are no barricades blocking off side streets from the station area. You'll remember just a couple years ago, Hida-san had shown us the extremely high measurements he had taken in the nearby areas. It's still a very contaminated place. When we stopped by this time, the area was completely devoid of people. There was no one using the train station. Yuji found a couple of officers in the police box, and we saw one police car patrolling, but otherwise we saw no one. But the area has undergone an odd revitalization. It almost seems like a universal studio set, just a facade. The area around the station has been coined the Futaba Art District. There are murals on the sides of buildings. There are rent cycles There's a train. You could conceivably arrive on the train, hop on a bike, take a selfie in front of a mural, and ride to the disaster museum. There's nothing anywhere telling you not to linger on the side of the road while you have a snack of rice balls and juice. As tourists start to flock back to Japan to take advantage of the cheap yen, I wonder how many will stray up this way to take advantage of this opportunity to shock people on Instagram.
0: So, after Futaba... And J-Village in Naraha, where did you go? And pardon my pronunciations.
1: That's okay. After breakfast at J-Village, we walked down to the lobby where we saw, again, quite a few high school students milling around, waiting for the big black buses parked outside to whisk them away to their next propaganda session along Fukushima's Innovation Coast. We headed along Route 6 to Tomioka. I hardly recognized the road without the barricades blocking the side streets, and I didn't realize that we were there until it dawned on me that all of the buildings along the road remained untouched and abandoned. I noticed but one decontamination-in-progress banner along the way. This time, the Geiger counter was silent, at least along this stretch of Route 6. It was 0.22 microsieverts per hour inside the car. We passed the Sakura Mall in Tomioka where we had eaten lunch with Setsuko Kida and Shinshu Hida in 2019. There were more regular cars parked there than in 2019, when most of the vehicles were trucks involved in decontamination and reconstruction. Still, even now, the majority of the vehicles were trucks.
0: What did you do while you were in Tomioka?
1: In Tomioka, we had the pleasure of meeting Yuki Saito, the president of Fukushima Environmental Research and Development, and Sho Kobayashi, who works with him. The best way I can describe the two of them is as reconstruction pioneers in the former exclusion zone. Theirs is kind of a David and Goliath effort. Saito-san's main business is providing maintenance for the solar farms that have sprung up on many of the fallow farm fields around Tomioka. This involves things like using robots to mow the weeds and so on. He's in his early 40s and has a wife and two young children, a toddler and a five-year-old. They were living in Iwaki in the far in the southern end of the prefecture, and he was commuting. That was difficult, and he had a hard time dealing with the old-timers in Tomioka, whose solar farms he was looking after. He was seen as an outsider, so he decided to move his family to Tomioka to see if he could make it work.
0: How many people live in Tomioka now?
1: Saito-san said the population is about 2,000, but most are decontamination and reconstruction workers. There are very few families with children He said that there is one school in the whole area, and that counting all grade levels, there are at most 30 to 40 kids combined. Kobayashi-san, who was a middle schooler at the time of the accident, said that there were about 160 kids per grade level back then. Most of the residents who left Tomioka have made their lives elsewhere and have no plans to return.
0: How has moving to Tomioka worked out for him?
1: Business-wise, he's having an easier time dealing with the locals who listen to him now and have come to rely on him in many ways. He was laughing that he has been thrust into many of the town leadership roles, and he's even a fire volunteer. As he evaluates local needs, he's expanding into various ventures. How so? For example, there's nowhere for local people to gather and discuss issues. So he bought a building next to his home, which is across from Yonomori Station. He and Kobayashi-san have turned the space into a designer jean shop with a space to hold meetings and creative events. When we were there, they were still getting things set up. It'll be interesting to see how it develops.
0: What are some of the challenges they faced living in Tomioka?
1: Saito-san said that he receives no government help for his ventures and little attention to the needs that any normal resident would have, but he was adamant that he wants to do what he is doing independently and does not want to have to be beholden to the government. He said that what he and Kobayashi-san are doing has nothing in common with the quote unquote story the government is creating with its innovation Coast development plans. The huge amounts of reconstruction funds going into building museums and and schools in places where there are no children and being funneled into bringing school tours from other parts of the country do not flow into areas that would really help local people live in the former exclusion zone. The government is trying to create one narrative of a high-tech postmodern Phoenix rising from the ashes But the truth lies elsewhere, with individuals who are trying to eke out a living and protect their families.
0: So what is the truth, seen from the eyes of the locals?
1: There were quite a few issues Saito-san touched on. First, right after the triple disaster, people from all over rushed in to help. Most of that assistance has dried up. Most of the homes around town are being torn down. In about two years, property taxes will start to kick in so people will be forced to decide whether or not to permanently cut dyes with the area. Everyone was compensated and has moved elsewhere. Saito-san said that it's optimistic to think that even half of those who left would ever return. The train station across from his house, which is brand new, by the way, sees almost no traffic. The day that we were there, no one was around, The other side of the station is still in the exclusion zone. Crime has decreased from the earlier days when looters would trespass in the exclusion zone and burglarize vacant homes. But it is still a problem. The nights are very dark and bring out thieves as well as wild boars, foxes, and raccoons. Safety is an issue in other areas too. For example, medical infrastructure is non-existent. There is one doctor in town. Anything out of the ordinary has to be seen elsewhere, which involves an hour's drive or a helicopter trip if it's an emergency. He stressed that you have to take responsibility for your own safety as far as radiation goes. Tomioka is around five miles from Fukushima Daiichi, and in the decontaminated zones, there are still hot spots. He was frustrated that he still has to call the authorities to have a corner near his property cleaned up again and again. We took a walk to the station, and Saito-san brought along his heavy-duty radiation detector to show us where there were some hot spots. He said that he's received criticism for using it, and that someone was likely to see him and comment, Why do you have that thing out again? But he has kids and the onus is on him to protect them. Related to this, there are very few young people and families with children. This is what is needed for a sustainable growing community. The reconstruction workers are temporary and many live elsewhere and commute. He said that the government's innovation coast idea is just PR and has no meaning unless people come back and form a community. He said that there's no honest discussion and debate about what residents really need. The government makes big plans and throws money around here and there. Saito-san was critical of yet another fancy school going up in an exclusion zone town, this time in Okuma, which hosts Fukushima Daiichi along with
0: Futaba. Speaking of young people, can you tell us about Kobayashi-san? You mentioned that he was young why is he in Tomioka?
1: Kobayashi-san is in his early 20s. He was in middle school in Tomioka at the time of the triple disaster. His family evacuated to Yamanashi, which is near Mount Fuji. That's where he spent the rest of his school days and grew up. And then he graduated and went to fashion design school. But he's always held on to a deep nostalgia for his hometown. He really wanted to be part of bringing Tomioka back to life. His friends think he's nuts, but he was really drawn to returning home. His dream was to come back and to start an izakaya pub, but this opportunity with Saito san came up and it appealed to his fashion design sensibilities. They've set up a designer denim shop/slash creative space called Yonomori Denim, and you can follow them at Instagram at yonomori under slash denim.
0: We'll post a link on our website at nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 611. Beverly, you've just given us a unique close-up on the ground view of the aftermath of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster for the people and the area. What, if any, final thoughts do you have? There
1: are no final thoughts about a nuclear accident. It's something that we'll be continuing to look at for the rest of both of our lives and probably my son's life. And there's likely to be another disaster with the nuclear renaissance that's happening in various countries. And again, with another possible buildup in nuclear arms due to this Ukraine conflict and the fallout from that. So there's no final thought.
0: Beverly Finlay-Kaneko, you have been our guide through Fukushima for all the years of Nuclear Hot Seat now. I want to thank you once again for being the voice from Japan for Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Beverly Findlay kaneko We'll have links up to the article she mentioned during the interview and an Instagram link to Kobayashi San's business in Tomioka. All of this on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 611. And while you're there, be sure to scroll down, where you will find a yellow opt-in box to sign up for one email a week with the link to Nuclear Hot Seat, and keep scrolling for a series of photos of Fukushima from the different perspective, all shot by Yuji Kaneko and used with his permission. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 7, 2023. A reminder that if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do is deeply appreciated. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with the date that it's over because once it starts, it is never over. That's your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat